0: Welcome to episode number 10 for Darkgate Horror Podcast. In this episode, we will discuss our fascination with horror. Before we get started, here is some news for you. Variety Magazine claims that scary movies have become the bread and butter product of new millennium Hollywood. So expect tons of them in 2007, many without benefit of a press screening to advise you of its merits. The list includes Ghost Rider with Nicolas Cage and a long-delayed Marvel Comics adaptation, The number 23 with a serious Jim Carrey obsessed with numerology. Premonition with Sandra Bullock plagued by her unwanted fortune-telling skills. That one actually looks pretty good. First Snow with Guy Pearce reacting badly to a psychic's ominous reading. Slasher with Luke Wilson and Kate Beckinsale at the mercy of snuff filmmakers. The Invasion with Nicole Kidman in a remake of 1956's Invasion of the Body Body Snatchers. 30 Days of Night with Josh Hartnett fighting vampires in Barrow, Alaska. 1408 with John Cusack as a paranormal debunker in an adaptation of a Stephen King story. Mm -hmm. The Eye with Jessica Alba as a woman whose eye transplant allows her to see the other side. Mr. Brooks with Kevin Costner as a man controlled by his evil alter ego. Blood and Chocolate with French star Olivier Martinez hassled by werewolves, which has had press everywhere lately. The Messengers, about an ominous darkness descending on a North Dakota farm, Grindhouse, a two-film horror package from directors Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez, and for Halloween, Halloween by Rob Zombie, not a remake of the John Carpenter classic, and Trick or Treat with Brian Cox and Anna Paquin among the stars of a four-story ominous spook film. Even though they are brief descriptions, some of these sound pretty good. I'm excited to see The Hitcher, the remake of the 1986 classic. I'd like to share with you a review from Gate. Hitcher, surprisingly harrowing by Christy Lemire, AP Movie Critic. So you're probably thinking, not again, not another remake of a horror movie. Following recent reheated versions of The Omen, The Hills Have Eyes, and When a Stranger Calls, an update of The Hitcher would seem needless. The 1986 original starring a then-hunky C. Thomas Howell was actually pretty scary. But you know what? The new one is too. You do have to suspend all disbelief and assume that the menacing hitchhiker John Ryder, Sean Bean of the Rutger Hauer, in the Rutger Hauer role, has the supernatural ability to be everywhere all the time with increasingly amounts of firepower. Oh, and that he can take out about ten cops and patrol cars with a helicopter all by himself. Still, if you choose to go with it, there are several good jumps and scares and it's surprisingly tense the whole way through, not just gory and cheesy. What's also surprising is that the film from Dave Myers, one of the most prolific music video directors in the business, Missy Elliott's Work It among hundreds, is an incredibly traditional straightforward horror flick. He lets the brutal events play out for themselves and doesn't try to overstylize them. Having said that, the man also knows how to stage a gnarly car crash. And in the overqualified Bean, best known as Boromir in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Myers has a truly dastardly twisted villain. Their cragginess in his face lets you know immediately that he's not someone you'd want to mess with, and that bright smile he flashes once in a while um, only makes him look eerier. Falling prey to a sinister stranger are scuffy Zachariah Knighton and sexy Sophia Bush as college sweethearts Jim and Grace, who pile into Jim's 1970 Oldsmobile 440. Why do horror movie victims always drive old cars? For a spring break road trip from Texas to Lake Havasaw, Arizona, This means they have to travel through New Mexico, with all its vast expanses and long stretches of brushy nothingness, dotted only with the occasional run-down diner or dreary motel. The perfect place to die is some really horrifically bloody death. Along their journey, they run into Ryder, almost literally during a torrential thunderstorm in the pitch black of night, who later weasels a ride out of them to a motel 50 miles up the road. Of course, he turns out to be a madman, but he's also inordinately crafty, even after Jim and Grace manage to kick him out of the car, he pins a series of killings on them across the state. The only person who believes Jim and Grace might not have been responsible for all this carnage is State Police Lieutenant Estridge, played by Neil McDonough. In this surreal wasteland, where justice is as hard to ascertain as motivation, that probably means he's a goner too. It's enough to make you want to fly in your next vacation. It's probably safer. The Hitcher, a rogue picture's release, as rated R for strong bloody violence, terror, and language. Running time, 83 minutes. Two and a half stars out of four. And the review can be found at sfgate.com. I'll put a link in the show notes. So let's move on to the main topic. Why are we fascinated with horror? Horror from a cultural and psychological standpoint. Like I've said before, I've loved horror films since I was a child. My mother was extremely concerned when I started to go through my dark phase, wearing all black and talking about death. But few people would say that horror is their favorite genre of film, since only psychopaths would say that, right? Sure, I like most genres of film and enjoy your summer blockbuster as much as the next girl, but I really like a good scare once in a while. As a kid, horror films are typically frowned upon by worrisome mothers who are concerned for the mental health of their children and to shelter them. It's a biological tendency. However, in my case, my parents encouraged me to use my imagination and horror appeals to the imaginative. Sure, I may have watched Poltergeist Between My Fingers as I covered my face at certain moments, but I was still watching out of the corner of my eye. And that was just the beginning of my love affair with horror films and all of the subtypes. To me, horror is an exploration of the unknown, the dark side of life, as Carl Jung would say, exploring the shadow archetype. Horror is both fascinating and scary at the same time. It can be seen as escaping the everyday to enter a world in which the rules are different and anything can happen. People want to be scared by a world of fiction in the comfort of their own living room or movie theater with buttered popcorn and a Coke. It can make your adrenaline race and make you jump off your seat. It can make you wonder what if it can make you realize that your life would be a whole lot worse if you were the person on the screen whether you fear death or are curious about it a good horror film can expand your awareness and take you to where you can only imagine unfortunately it takes a lot for me to get scared and few horror films have a big impact on my psyche sure i like slashers it gets the adrenaline pumping and just a few notes of the halloween theme is enough for my conditioned response of heart racing to begin But I also like the dark comedy horrors such as Evil Dead and Shaun of the Dead. However, the films that stay with me are those that are based in some reality, incorporate a lot of drama and are psychological in nature. Gore doesn't bother me. It is what you don't see on the screen that can be the scariest of all. The part that is heightened by your own imagination. Great examples of this are Jaws and Psycho. Some people argue that thrillers and suspense films are not true horror films, but I think that they are cousins, and therefore can be considered in the larger classification. Plus, these films appeal to a larger, varied audience than your typical slasher film. At least, that's true among the people I know. Sure, there is the backlash against horror films as morally corrupt, vile, and evil and should not be seen by adults, let alone our kids. You know, that there is enough horror in the real world, and so on. I do not discount their beliefs and values, but I just don't get where they're coming from. The bottom line is that horror films are entertainment, and need to be looked at as such. I hope to analyze our fascination with horror by looking at it from a cultural and psychological standpoint and to give examples. I was inspired to do this podcast when I read the list of horror films coming out in 2007. This genre seems to be expanding rather than shrinking, even in a time of war and unrest in the US and many other parts of the world. There is horror around us, on the news, on our doorsteps, and horror films may just be the distraction to take us away for a couple of hours. In a study by Kansas State University psychology professor Leon Rapaport, he states that, quote, the more civilized we get, the more we repress our sort of uncivilized nature. He continues by saying, and one way to release that is through festival occasions, vicariously enjoying horror movies and all sorts of related things. Watching horror expands the boundary between what is socially acceptable and what is not. And this desire goes back a long time. He says, it's a very prevalent, deep-seated human characteristic to explore the boundaries where they can tolerate fear and anxiety and then master that fear and anxiety by working through it. So why the insurgents of horror films at different times? I think the kind of horror that gets out there really reflects, you know, the environment we are living in right now, which is a pretty scary one, you know, said James Wan, co-author, producer, and director of the Saw series. You don't know quite what could happen to us every step of the way, and I think a horror film is a way of expressing that up there on the screen. It is almost like a cathartic way of, like, venting one's fear, basically. Well, I think we're actually in a period that's cycling through the same area that the horror films of the 70s were in because both were made during great periods of culture clashes, said master of horror Wes Craven. You know, in the 70s it was Vietnam and now we have, obviously, what's going on in the Middle East. So the torture films tend to be very visceral and, oddly enough, the ones these days have a fair amount of torture in it, which is obviously right out of the news and it seems that both countries or both groups are doing it, the United States and its enemies. Our own government has been caught torturing. It's like holding citizens of other nations right now at Guantanamo without any charges being brought. So there's a very deep sense of all that rule, all the rules are being broken and we don't know what the rules are anymore. Now, when that's the case, I think the horror films reflect that. The horror films are basically nightmares of a society, Craven says. That article can be found at abcnews.go.com. Um, it's from Nightline a while back and um, I'll put the link in the show notes. It's a neat article. So let's move on to a discussion about fear. And we can't have a discussion about horror without mentioning the fear response behind horror. Fear is a basic human emotion, along with anger and love, and fear is one of the group of reactions in organisms with a long history of survival advantages for the owner. In humans, fear has many built-in symbiotic subroutines based on triggers of data and internal data construction models or thoughts or reactive peptides and other subsystems in the human brain. That's a lot of fancy stuff. But essentially, what it is, is it's a built-in response that we've had all of the while that humans have been in existence. An example of this may be something dangerous and spontaneous. During this situation, the blood goes to big muscles, like legs, allowing the person to run faster. Also, the body freezes up just an instant, allowing the brain to decide if another reaction would be better, like hiding. In the brain, hormones are released, centering the attention of the threat, always looking for the most accurate reaction. We know it is fight or flight. Although it's an arbitrary classification, some techniques and chemicals can suppress fear. It occurs during the manifestation of a real or perceived attack on the system. Its evolutionary purpose begins to incite the system to react. Fear also can be described as a feeling of extreme dislike towards certain conditions, objects, people, or situations such as fear of darkness, fear of ghosts, etc. Personal fear varies extremely in degree from mild caution to extreme phobia and paranoia. Fears may be a factor within a larger social network wherein personal fears are synergetically compounded as mass hysteria. Fear may underlie some phenomena of behavior modification, although these phenomena can be explained without adducing fear as a factor in them. Furthermore, the application of aversive stimuli is often ineffective in producing change in the behavior intended to be changed. Fearing objects or contexts can be learned. In animals this is being studied as fear conditioning, which depends on the emotional circuitry of the brain. It is one of the basic emotions and is linked heavily to the amygdala neurons. Fear can be described by different terms in accordance with the relative degrees. It covers a number of terms, worry, anxiety, terror, fright paranoia, horror, panic, whether it's social or personal, persecution, complex, and dread. Horror is the feeling of revulsion that usually occurs after something frightening is seen, heard, or otherwise experienced. It's the feeling you get after coming to an awful realization or experiencing a hideous revelation. Terror, by contrast, is usually described as the feeling of dread and anticipation that usually precedes the horrifying experience. Horror can also be defined as a combination of terror and revulsion, The distinction between terror and horror was first characterized by the Gothic horror writer Anne Radcliffe, according to Devendra Varma in The Gothic Flame of 1966. The difference between terror and horror is the difference between awful apprehension and sickening realization between the smell of death and stumbling upon a corpse. I am actually going to talk about Anne Radcliffe in the next podcast, which will be a discussion of women horror writers, primarily of the Victorian age that were considered the original gothic horror writers. But let's move on to an article called The Seven Deadly Sins of Horror. This is something fun. It's The deadly Seven Deadly Sins of Horror. It's on a blog by James Moran on December 20th, 2006. That's funny, I went to college with a guy with the same name. But this James Moran is responsible for the film Severance, which is coming to theaters in, well, this month, in April 2007. It was released in Europe last year and it's on DVD in Region 2 right now. I'm not going to share the entire article, but here are some excerpts. Filmmakers, consider yourself put on notice. You are now expressly forbidden for putting any of the following in a horror movie. Number seven, the grabbing hand. How many times have you sneaked up on a friend, walked silently right up behind them and then suddenly grabbed their shoulder, without intentionally trying to freak them out, and then been surprised that you were scared yourself? Never. And yet it happens in horror movies all the time. Number six, sudden attacks of deafness. If you're in a building with someone and they wander out the door, they may still be able to hear you if you call out to them. Number 5. Magic Psychic Killers Oh, thank goodness the large-breasted girl has managed to put some distance between herself and the killer. Oh, look! She's found a car! And what do you know? It's unlocked! And the keys are in the ignition! And the engine has started! First time! Hooray! She's going to escape! I hope that killer hasn't somehow magically teleported into the back seat where he will suddenly pop up to stab or gear at her. I'm sure that won't happen, though, because we need the aforementioned teleporting skills, plus the ability to psychically predict which car she will choose. And it will make no sense to hide in the backseat until she starts driving and then attack her. So he probably won't do that. Oh, he did. Number 4. Cars That Get Scared Oh dear, the car suddenly won't start. How inconvenient, being that I am in this very juncture being chased by a monster. Yes, the same car that drove me all the way up the mountain and has been working for years has chosen this precise moment to break down, just as I'm trying to escape as opposed to, say, Act 1, for example. How come the car never breaks down just before the horny, doomed teenagers leave for their road trip? If a previously healthy car won't start, it had better be because the killer has mangled it or stuffed a dead body in the engine. Number 3. Sudden attacks of clumsiness. Run! Run like the wind! Run from the killer! Oh, you fell over. Well done! Because able-bodied adults fall over all the time, don't they? Yes, I know you need the killer to catch up for the sake of the plot, but do something else. Throw a locked door, a trap, a speeding car in the way, anything. Don't just have them fall over, it's lazy and stupid. Same goes for someone hiding, trying to stay quiet, who just happens to knock over a display stand filled with 500 metal plates. If you ever need to hide from a killer, I'm going to be as careful as I can, thanks. If the character who falls over is female, you lose even more points. If she is subsequently helped up by a male character, then your bust to the 1950s is leaving shortly. Be on it. Number 2. Miraculous recoveries. Can we please retire this one? Please? He's dead. Oh no, he's alive! Having the killer pop up with a genuine surprise when Michael Myers did it in Halloween. But guess what? That was nearly 30 years ago. It's finally time to end that tradition. It's been done way too often. Come on, we need a new thing. Just leave it alone. Right, I'm finished with this paragraph. No, I'm not. Booga, booga, booga. Okay, I am now. And the number one thing you must never, ever, 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 ever use in a horror movie on pain of death. Number one, characters who don't kill the killer when they're given the chance. I really, really thought we'd laid this one to rest, but apparently not. Imagine you're in a real-life situation and some crazy guy has repeatedly tried to kill you. It's terrifying. Your life is in danger. He will kill you if he can. Probably torturing and raping you beforehand. Probably wearing your skin perhaps eating your internal organs. But oh, happy day, you get a lucky break and manage to knock him out or immobilize him. When he wakes up or frees himself, he will continue to kill you and will probably succeed. But right now, you have a few minutes. Do you A, kill him or B, run away giving him a chance to come after you again? The answer, of course, is A, you kill him by any means necessary. So, for the rest of the article, you go to jamesmoran.blogspot.com 2006 slash 12 slash 7-deadly-sins-of-horror-300th-post.html. That's a long one, I'll put it in the show notes. The article's absolutely hilarious, and I thought you might need a little humor after all of the lovely psychology and biology I threw at you. Well that does it for this episode the song of the night tonight is ghostly feeling by bait brought to you by Magnatune.com. enjoy
1: behind Switch around your frame of mind How long must it take
0: to mention earlier I have some big news in case you aren't listening to the supernatural podcast I just moved to Los Angeles so I am back in Southern California finally new apartment new job new change of scenery and I have a couple podcasts in the works that I've been working on the last couple months so even though I haven't been recording I've been doing a lot of research and a lot of preparation and I should have another one out to you in the next couple weeks so take care, everybody. I'll talk to you soon. The song tonight, Ghostly Feeling by Bait, was brought to you by magnetune.com.